Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, July the 28th, 2023, the last Friday uh, in July, the last full week in July. We're almost in August. We've had a very cultural Monday, not Friday, Monday, Friday so far. I don't want to think about Monday at the moment. Um, <laughs> we started with a conversation with Warren Zanes, who's written this wonderful book, Deliver, Deliver Me From Nowhere, a book about the making of Bruce Springsteen's uh, iconic 1982 album, Nebraska. And we followed up with an equally interesting conversation with a very senior person at uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, uh, Prudence Pfeiffer, who has a new book out, The Slip, The New York City Street That Changed American Art Forever. Um, so we've done one show on popular music, one on art, and now we're following up uh, with a show about books. Bethann Patrick is one of uh, America's leading book critics, thinkers, activists, writers. She's very, very active on Twitter. She has over 200,000 followers as the book maven. She was on the show actually earlier this year. She has uh, a new book out um, on her own double depression, which she called um, uh, Life B, Overcoming Double Depression. It was an interesting conversation. But I invited Bethann back not to talk about Life B, but to talk about the books that are making her excited uh, this year. And she's joining us uh, from a very hot and appropriately hot Washington, D.C., because one of the books that she recommends this week is uh, one by Jeff Goodall called The Heat Will Kill You First. Fortunately, so far at least, uh, Bethann is still alive. Uh, welcome, Bethann. Lovely to see you again. It is lovely to see you again, too, Andrew. And I am really happy to talk about The Heat Will Kill You First because I think Jeff Goodall really knows his business. He is a longtime journalist and climate change believer, someone who actually has been following the environment and uh, global warming for a long time for Rolling Stone, among other places. And he wrote a book a few years back called The Water Will Rise, and now he's written The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. And one of the things that Goodall is emphasizing in this book is that heat really will kill you before you even know that you are in danger. That's one of the scariest things about extreme heat is that we're not always able. We know we're hot. We know something's wrong, but we don't realize how it is basically melting everything inside us, making us hemorrhage. And one of the anecdotes that he relates is about a family who went on a hike in um, what they thought were quite mild temperatures, what was going to be a two-mile hike. And 
they got lost or something happened and the temperatures kept going up as the day went on and they wound up dead, a mother, a father, a baby girl and a dog. And when I got to the part about how the dog may have suffered first, uh, I almost couldn't keep reading, but I had to keep reading because this is an urgent book and it's also a very fast paced book. Yeah, I always, um, uh, when whenever publishers yeah. and publicists use the word urgent, I always raise my eyebrows as I want to do, but this actually right. is, uh, no, this is actually one of the few is. books that you can talk about urgency, particularly given what's happening now, especially on the East Coast as we speak, yes. uh, Bethann. Uh, you talk about, we, we always joke about hot books in the industry uh, and publishing is all about timing. This book comes at a perfect time. I'm sure it doesn't give Jeff or you any great happiness, but it's certainly an appropriate. Um... It is an appropriate book and it's a very important one. And I hope that people will read it and truly consider the fact that we have to adapt and um, we have to adapt, excuse me. And Jeff himself fell in love and moved from the East Coast to Austin, Texas. And he said he is the most begrudging, reluctant user of air conditioning, but there is no other way to live in Texas. So he, he knows that we all have things we want to not we don't want to do away with air conditioning we don't want to be uncomfortable but if we don't do something on a very large scale soon he also knows that we're going to be in danger of death i'd like to get actually jeff on the show i think i will after this conversation yes uh we do a lot of books as you know bethann on uh, on the environment some are very ap apocalyptic some see technology as being the solution. Some even see capitalism as the solution. What does, um, what does uh, Jeff Goodall say about um, the, the fix? What are we supposed to do? I mean, it's not enough not, not just to switch on our air conditioning. That's right. No, he's very clear about that. This is something that is going to have to um, happen at very high levels of government and also at a global on a global scale that nothing can happen if we don't have cooperation between large industrial powers economic powers and so he says that the thing readers general public readers can do is to truly pay attention to what's happening with my, you know, uh, populations that are close by take care of people who are old and vulnerable um, or young and vulnerable, you know, people who are unhoused, people who may not have proper fans or air conditioning. You know, um, we can be activists and we can still push for much, much larger change and legislation. The world itself, Bethan, is increasingly appearing as if it's a, a horror film or a horror, horror novel. Um, mm -hmm. you, one of your recommended books of the week, The Militia House, is um, uh, uh, a horror. But it's a horror of war, though. Um, you read very broadly, both in non-fiction non and fiction. What's so horrible about The Militia House? 
the militia house is actually not quite a horror novel i have a different novel on the list we'll talk about that is more of a horror novel this is silver nitrate right yeah exactly but the militia house is a gothic novel and this is really important andrew because john milas whose first novel this is has written a book using an abandoned Soviet armory in Afghanistan as a Gothic device. So we all know, right, about houses of horror. We know about the mad woman in Mr. Rochester's attic. We know about the castle of Otranto, et cetera, all of these places. So what happens when you take a military facility and bring in American soldiers and have them have a paranormal, perhaps supernatural experience in that place. How do you write a gothic novel that isn't about, oh, I don't know, big hoop skirts and, you know, creepy English abandoned estates? He's done it. And he's done it in such a superb fashion. I interviewed him and wrote a profile of John Milas for the LA Times. I'm really, really happy that I did because one of the things we talked about is the tension in any um, sector of the military between non-commissioned officers and commissioned officers and how that affects the people in the militia house who are, you know, they're, they're front of base, fobbits. Um, they are very young soldiers and, uh, excuse me, they're Marines. Excuse me. I'm sorry, John Milas, they're Marines. Very young Marine corporals who are in this place very far forward in Afghanistan. And there's just a few of them. They don't really, they have a commanding officer. She is a Lieutenant and she's not around very much because she's usually back, you know, with uh, other um, troops. So they're quite lonely and they only get to socialize with some British troops who are there. And it's the British troops who encourage them to go into this militia house. What happens is so strange and it is tied into the experience of war and conflict and being on the front. It's about PTSD. It's about trauma. It's about also, and this is something very important that Milas and I discussed, the trauma of going back home and having people ask you questions that have nothing to do with the service you are giving to your country. That it has to do with going back home and having people say, so what do you think the president should do about this war? And all you're thinking is, I wish that I had clean socks more than once a week, or I'm really bored most of the time, or I'm frightened every second of every day. So this is a book that uses Gothic tropes and structure to truly educate us all about what American service members go through when they're deployed. You read extensively, as I said, um, Beth Ann. My sense is that there, well, we're living in a, and, and it's not necessarily, this isn't good news given the history of the American, the, the catastrophic history of the American adventure in Af Afghanistan and generally in the Middle East, but we're living in a golden age of writing from ex-soldiers one who comes to mind who's been on the show a couple of times is Elliot Ackerman I'm sure you're familiar with his work I am uh is it a a good age at least from a literary point of view in terms of uh, literary soldiers or ex-soldiers 
This is such an interesting question for me because I am married to um, a former um, military officer. And so I've always been quite interested in who is writing about the military. Uh, you know, one of my friends um, who is a noted, noted novelist, Kaylee Jones, is the daughter of James Jones, who wrote From Here to Eternity. Mm. And, you know, that is one of the all time classic war um, novels that's been adapted to a movie and musical, all that sort of thing. And so I know that there have been important war novels like From Here to Eternity, Slaughterhouse-Five, um, that sort of thing. But I do think we are living in an era, to get to your point, Andrew, in which we are seeing that people who have served have creative viewpoints on their experience. It used to be we expected people to come home and often they didn't want to talk about anything at all. That's a very World War II um, veteran kind of experience. Or they didn't want to talk about things because of politics, like the people who came back from the Vietnam War. But right now, we know enough about the effects of deployment and combat and stress to realize that there needs to be some kind of creative outlet for Elliot Ackerman, Kevin Powers, Phil Clee, um, so many of these. Yeah, Phil, Phil Clee was on the show too. He's yeah, he's, he's terrific. And they are, you know, um, John Miles, for example, told me that he doesn't think he really ever should have gone into the military and he was not sorry to be out. It's not something, um, you know, that is a, he's not dismissive of the Marines in any way or disrespectful. It's just not for him. Now, maybe, you know, Elliot is on the board of the Penn Faulkner Foundation with me. And I know he is very, very um proud of his service and writes a great deal about politics in the military. But I do think we're seeing this uh, upsurge in people fostering narratives, um, whether nonfiction or fiction, from people who have served, men and women. Um, another writer who is a military spouse is named Siobhan Fallon. And Siobhan wrote an incredible short story collection about Fort Hood, Texas called You Know When the Men Are Gone. And it was about when soldiers were in Iraq early in this um, in this century. And so in the, I can't believe we're still in a different century. That's hard for me. But anyway, uh, there are a lot of great, great novels being written and short stories too about the military experience now. So let's focus on the real horror yes. book of the week, um, Silver Nitrate by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Uh, it's one set in Mexico. Um, and uh, in the in the 90s in Mexico City, it kind of reminds me of a of another uh, Mexico horror book that we covered uh, a few months ago. Tell me about Silver Nitro. So Sylvia Moreno Garcia, I just want to say first before we specifically dive into Silver Nitrate, is kind of a genius. And here's why she in each book, jumps from genre to genre. Sometimes she's writing a gothic novel, sometimes a sci-fi novel, sometimes a suspense novel, and now a horror novel. And each one not only follows all the rules of the genre, 
Um, but it's also usually set in Mexico or in a Latinx area of the United States. And it also has themes and other concerns that are much bigger and deeper than any genre. Uh, I love her writing and think she is incredibly gifted. And this one, her turn into horror, uh, she's written Gothic before, is I, I love that she jumps around in time as well. So this is set in the 90s. She's written books set in the 19th century, in the 1950s, et cetera. And you've got these two people who are very, very close friends, childhood friends, Montserrat and Tristan. And they wind up meeting a neighbor who is this famous horror film director. And of course, I immediately thought of Guillermo del Toro and his cabinet of curiosities mm. with this, this, um, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Senor Urieta, who is the uh, the director in this book. And what's really interesting to me about that, too, is that there is a, an older character who is somehow, you know, bringing these two people, these friends, you know, astray deeper and deeper into something that is out of everyone's control. You know, it's not he's not the puppet master quite a strange and you just pulled up this description that mentions here's something else that's in the book I think that's really important is the Nazi history in Latin America and mm. Central America um, because for many reasons which I wouldn't even try to pretend I'm an expert on there were a lot of former national socialists who escaped Germany and fled to Latin America and so part of the horror in silver nitrate touches on that history so it's quite um it's not just that she gets the 90s right which she does but she also manages to bring in this previous very frightening yet still relevant period of time in the 20th century history that she's dealing with. And it is just, it, it, all of her books, you cannot stop reading them, Andrew. I'm telling you, she is one of the best paced authors I know. And I think this is just my opinion. I don't know what Sylvia herself would say. It's because she has a PhD in literature. She is just an expert on the and you know analyzing how plots and stories should work and she does an incredible job this is just one of those books if you the heat may kill you but silver nitrate will give you something to look forward to while you're staying cool inside well if the heat doesn't kill you loneliness will at least according to our surgeon general uh and you recommend a a memoir uh appropriately entitled Owner of a Lonely Heart. There couldn't be any more contemporary title than that, uh, Beth Ann. I mean, I don't want, I won't start singing, but you know, it is a song lyric and there's a reason for that, um, that Beth Nguyen gets into in her memoir. And this is an interesting memoir because it's about a lacuna. It's about the absence of her mother in her life. What happened is that Nguyen and her father and um, trying to remember which other siblings um, escaped uh, Vietnam. And her mother was trying to get to the side of Saigon that 
would allow her to get onto the boat with them and was detained. And so this meant that she wasn't able to see Beth Nguyen, her daughter, until Beth was 19. And over the course of the past few decades, Beth has spent a total of 24 hours with her biological mother. It is really hard. And one of the things that makes it even harder for Nguyen as the author is that what her mother wants to do when they get together is go to a slot machine, go to a casino and play slots. Mm. And this is really difficult. Um, I happen to know um, Nguyen a little bit from online and she is married to another wonderful writer, Porter Shreve, who comes from a DC literary family. So she lives in a a culturally sophisticated world now. Um, she is a, a writer of memoir and novels. Um, you know, she teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it's not so much that she's looking down on her mother for wanting to play slots. It's not so much a classist kind of thing, like, you know, why don't you want to go out for tea with me, mummy, or something like that? It's not. It's about the fact that the, her mother doesn't want to connect to her, that her mother would rather put a machine and gambling between them. Um, and, you know, you realize, as Nguyen writes, that this is hard for both of them, the mother doesn't know how to take those years, all those years between, you know, Nguyen's, you know, toddlerhood when she left and her 19 year old self and understand them. And Nguyen doesn't understand how to read her mother's experience. And she's longing, owner of a lonely heart. She's longing to connect with her mother. And so the book that sounds is like a very sad and in, in a way, it connects with Militia House in the it sense does. that it's, uh, in an odd way, a Vietnam memoir. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that is a very interesting statement. Um, I wish we just, you know, had a chat podcast where we could talk about that for an hour because, in a way, Militia House is... Uh, so, um, Owner of a Lonely Heart is a Vietnam memoir, and Militia House is an Afghanistan, you know, story. And we don't do these wars very well in, in the United States. We just don't. And that is not me disrespecting the military at all. That is purely disrespecting our politicians who are the ones who tell the military what to do and when to do it and where to go. Um, so, I think these books have a lot in common because they are about being disenfranchised because of conflict and because of this is something I talked about with Milas. It's about young people being affected by this conflict. And that's what happens to Nguyen. She is never going to be able to have the heart that she wants to. Her heart will never be, I mean, she has a family of her own. She has a husband and children and she loves them very much, but she knows that there will always be this hole, this mother-shaped hole in her heart. 
final book of the week uh, for, for you, Bethan, is not that. It's not Extreme <laughs> Heat, where that's everywhere. It's Elsewhere, not everywhere. Elsewhere by Yan Ji. Again, another uh, a collection of short stories. I have to admit, I hadn't heard of Yan Ji. Tell us about... Well, I mean, and I don't I'm know if it's her I name right. Yeah, I Yang don't know if it's Yanji or Yangge. I've been saying Yangge, but I will find probably Yangge. Uh, yeah. And I found out about this author, uh, Yangge, uh, when I read *Strange Beasts of China*, which came out a few years ago, and I wrote for that in my Lit Hub column um, that I used to write uh, about books you may have missed. And *Strange Beasts of China* was like nothing I had ever, ever read before. And for literary critics and book reviewers, that is one of the most exciting things ever when you find a book that completely breaks the mold. And so just quickly, Strange Beasts of China was about um, an imagined city that had these beasts with certain kinds of identifying marks, including um, odd birthmarks, which really, uh, it's hard for people to see, but I do have a port wine stain on my cheek. So mm. whenever I see something about birthmarks, I'm quite interested and keep reading. So I did. And it's wonderful. These beasts are kind of protectors of the city and they're very, um, they have real personalities, but it doesn't seem like some sort of childlike imagining of fantastical creatures. It's not like, a, um, you know, a JK Rowling, you know, kind of book. It's a very adult book and a very serious book about how these beasts interact with the humans in their midst and sort of the interdependentness of the two. So when I saw Elsewhere coming up, I thought, got to read this right away. And I want to tell you, this is fascinating because Gay has moved to England. I believe she lives in Norwich and I'm and teaches somewhere. I'm not sure. Maybe Probably, you know, uh, at UEA. Uh, yeah. At University of East Anglia. Would that be it? Yeah. So these are short stories and they are her first publications in English. So here she is. She's written something like 13 to 15 books, very, very highly acclaimed in, China. in Chinese. Yeah, course. in Chinese. And now she's writing in English, which fascinates me. It's kind of like Jhumpa Lahiri writing in Italian. And she writes incredibly well in English. These are one of the things I want to make sure I mention about this book is that the major novella in, in the book and another story are both fantastical reimaginings of earlier periods in Chinese history. So imagine, I don't know if you watched The Great, um, Andrew, about, no. uh, oh, it's an amazing TV series with Nicholas Holt and uh, Elle Fanning about Catherine the Great in Russia, but mm. it's not true to historical fact at all. It's very... Um, satirical. It's also farcical. It's very strange. It's very fun. And Young Gay's um, writing about Confucius's life and about other time periods reminded me of the great. It's very interesting. <sighs> and um, she makes, she plays around a lot with um, fantastic elements that might have happened but all of the stories are extremely strong in elsewhere and they mostly deal with how people cope um, when they can't speak a language when they can't communicate which is appropriate since she's writing in a new language 
In other news of the week, Bethan, you've made a little bit of news of your own. Uh, you write a you you write a, a Substack a newsletter associated with Culture Wag called um, uh, a Book Wag. Yes. Uh, you're also a, a columnist for the New York uh, for the Los Angeles Times. I introduced you though um, as someone very active on Twitter, but uh, in the last few days you announced. Uh, you wrote, appropriately enough, I guess, on Twitter, which is now called X. I have chosen my Twitter end date. It will yes. be August 8th, the 15-year anniversary of my signing on to a place that has given me a great deal. We will will delete my accounts. You say later you're not going to delete the account. That's right. Please. And I, um, I said that because um, if you delete your Twitter account, your name, your Twitter handle <laughs> can be used by someone else. And I thought, I don't want someone else being on X as the book maven, not after yeah. 15 years. And would they take and your, what, what happens to your 215,000 followers? Do they get those too? I don't know. All I know is I thought I'll pin a tweet and say, here's where to find me. My bio has all of these links now. And I am finding, I have to tell you, uh, I thought that blue sky, Andrew would be the place that I really loved, but, Threads is actually seeming more interesting. And listen, none of these places is without problems. It's not like any of the people who own these places are, um, you know, great, great people, you know, stellar human beings. Um, so I just figure I'm going to find the place where I find the kind of community that I found 15 years ago on Twitter. Well, you and I, I first met on Twitter. So we did. Uh, and, and excuse the innocence of this question wh why are you leaving i mean is it be simply because of mask or something else changed it's this rebranding um that is really bothering me andrew um it seems very that x logo is a little too close to a swastika for for my comfort there was no need for it to be anything but Twitter. And I probably would have stayed if it had, but I am not comfortable with what Elon Musk wants to do now and what he wants it to look like. And even if it doesn't go any further down, you know, the road into fascistic, you know, practices, and I hope that it won't, I just thought this, this is a little too much for me. Yeah. Well, Elon Musk's loss is the rest of our gain. Bethan Patrick's lovely to have you back on the show. I think we're going to make a, a regular weekly or bi-weekly thing of this. You read so many books and uh, you bring a great deal of wisdom and uh, entertainment to, to our book audience. So thank you so much. Have a great weekend, Bethan, and we'll talk again maybe next week. Thanks, Andrew, so much. See you soon. Have a great weekend. Bye now.